0: Hi everyone, my name is Otis Gray and you're listening to Sleepy, a podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. The show is still growing pretty quickly actually and more and more people are writing to me saying that they listen to Sleepy every night to go to sleep and it's given them better sleep than they've had in a while, which is such an amazing compliment and something I really couldn't have hoped for when I first started this show. If the show works for you too, it would be amazing if you could help us keep growing by going on Apple Podcasts and leaving a rating and a review and also leave a book that you would like to hear on Sleepy in one of the reviews. Again, this only takes a minute and it really helps the show get found. Thank you. As always, the music that you're hearing is from my good friend James Lipkowski playing this on his little guitar ukulele thing that he made. I'm actually going to James's wedding tomorrow in upstate New York. So congratulations to James and Jenny. So you might notice that this actually sounds a little different than some of our other sleepy shows. You might be able to hear crickets in the background. Maybe a slight rushing river. That's because I'm home in Vermont. I've been going through a lot of changes myself In the recent weeks A lot of good changes All uncomfortable changes, but good ones Um, So I figured this week I would get away to the country And I'm way up in the woods It just stopped raining My lawn is a deep, deep green And the woods are black It's just about to be nightfall I'm really lucky to have this kind of place when I'm going through tough changes. And I always try not to take it for granted. So, as things are changing, I thought we'd read a story tonight about change. It's A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens. I haven't read this in a long, long time. It felt pretty appropriate for everything that's going on in my life, in the world. And it's a pretty good one to go to sleep to. So lay your head back. Get your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. It was the best of times. The period was so far like the present period. Some of the noisiest authorities insisted on its being received, for good or for evil, in the superlative degree of comparison only. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a plain face, on the throne of England. There were a king with a large jaw and a queen with a fair face, on the throne of France. In both countries it was clearer than crystal to the lords of the state, preserves of loaves and fishes, that things in general were settled forever. It was the year of our Lord, 1775. Spiritual revelations were conceded to England at that favored period, as at this. Mrs. Southcott had recently attained her five and twentieth blessed birthday, of whom a prophetic private in her life's guards had heralded the sublime appearance of announcing that arrangements were for the swallowing up of London and Westminster. Even the clock Lane ghost had been laid only round a dozen of years, after wrapping out its passages as the spirits of this very year last passed, supernaturally deficient in originality, wrapped out theirs. Mere messages in the earthly order of events had lately come to the English crown and people from a congress of British subjects in America, which, strange to relate, have proved more important to the human race than any communications yet received through any of the chickens of the cocklate brood. France, less favored on the whole as to matters spiritual, than her sister of the shield and trident, rolled up with exceeding smoothness down the hill, making paper money and spending it. Under the guidance of the Christian pastors, she entertained herself. Besides, with such humane achievements as sentencing a youth to have his hands cut off, his tongue torn out with pincers, and his body burned alive because he had not kneeled down in the rain to do honor to the dirty procession of monks which passed within his view at a distance of some fifty or sixty yards. It is likely enough that, rooted in the woods of France and Norway, there were growing trees, when that sufferer was put to death, already marked by the woodman fate, to come down to be sawn into boards, to make a certain movable framework, with a sack and a knife in it, Terrible in history. It is likely enough that in the rough outhouses of some tillers of the heavy lands adjacent to Paris, there were sheltered from the weather that every day, rude carts, bespattered with rustic mire, snuffed out by pigs, and roosted in by poultry, which the farmer, Death, had already set apart to be his tumbrils of the Revolution. But that woodman and that farmer, Though they work unceasingly, work silently, and no one heard them as they went about with muffled tread, the rather, for as much to entertain any suspicion that they were awake, was to be atheistical and traitorous. In England there was scarcely an amount of order and protection to justify much national boasting. Daring burglaries by armed men and highway robberies took place in the capital itself every night. Families were publicly cautioned not to go out of town without removing the furniture to upholster his warehouses for security. The highwayman in the dark was a city tradesman in the light, and being recognized and challenged by his fellow tradesmen, whom he stopped in his character of the captain, gallantly shot him through the head and rode away. The mail was waylaid by seven robbers, and the guard shot three dead, and then got shot dead himself by the other four in consequence of the failure of his ammunition. After which the mail was robbed in peace, that magnificent potentate, the Lord Mayor of London, was made to stand and deliver on Turnham Green by one highwayman who despoiled the illustrious creature in the sight of all his retinue. Prisoners in London gales fought battles with their turnkeys, and the majesty of the law fired blunderbusses in among them, loaded with rounds of shot and ball, Thieves sniffed off diamond crosses from the necks of noble lords at court drawing rooms. Musketeers went into St. Giles to search for the contraband goods, and the mob fired on the musketeers, and the musketeers fired on the mob, and nobody thought any of these reoccurrences much out of the common way. In the midst of them, the hangman, ever busy and ever worse than useless, was in constant requisition now stringing up long rows of miscellaneous criminals, now hanging a housebreaker on Saturday who had been taken on Tuesday, now burning people in the hand at Newgate by the dozen, and now burning pamphlets at the door of Westminster Hall, today taking the life of an atrocious murderer and tomorrow of a wretched pilferer who had robbed a farmer's boy of sixpence. All these things and a thousand like them came to pass in and close upon the dear old year, one thousand seven hundred and seventy-five, environed by them, while the woodman and the farmer worked unheeded, those two of large jaws, and those other two of plain and fair faces, trod with stir enough, and carried their divine rights with a high land. Thus did the year one thousand seven hundred and seventy-five conduct their greatness, and myriads of small creatures the creatures of this chronicle among the rest, along the roads that lay before them. The Mail It was the Dover Road that lay on a Friday night late in November before the first of the persons with whom this history has business. The Dover Road lay, as to him, beyond the Dover Mail, as it lumbered up Shooter's Hill. He walked uphill in the mire by the side of the Mail, as the rest of passengers did, not because they had the least relish for walking exercise under the circumstances, but because the hill, and the harness, and the mud, and the mail were all so heavy that the horses had three times already come to a stop, besides once drawing the coach across the road with the mutinous intent of taking it to the Blackheath. reins and whip and coachman and guard, however, in combination, had read that article of war, which forbade a purpose otherwise strongly in favor of the argument that some brute animals are endured with reason, and the team had capitulated and returned to their duty. With drooping heads and tremulous tails, they mashed their way through the thick mud, floundering and stumbling between whiles as if they were falling to pieces at larger joints. As often as the driver arrested them and brought them to a stand, With wary, woe ho, so ho then, the near leader violently shook his head and everything upon it, like an unusually emphatic horse, denying that the coach could get up the hill. Whenever the leader made this rattle, the passenger started, as a nervous passenger might, and was disturbed in mind. There was a steaming mist in all the hollows, and it had roamed in the forlornness up in the hill, like an evil spirit seeking rest and finding none. A clammy and intensely cold mist that it made its slow way through the air and ripples that visibly followed and overspread one another as the waves of an unwholesome sea might do. It was dense enough to shut out everything from the light of the coach lamps but these its own workings and a few yards of road and the reek of the laboring horses steamed into it as if they had made it at all. The other two passengers, besides the one, were plodding up the hill by the side of the mail. All three were wrapped in cheekbones and above the ears, and wore jack boots. Not one of the three could have said from anything he saw what either of the other two was like, and each was hidden under almost as many wrappers from the eyes of the mind as from the eyes of the body of his two companions. In those days travelers were very shy, of being confidential on short notice, for anybody on the road might be a robber or in league with robbers. As to the latter, when every posting house and alehouse could produce somebody in the captain's pay, ranging from the landlord of the lowest stable nondescript, it was the likeliest thing upon the cards. So, the guard of the Dover Mail thought to himself that Friday night in November, 1775, lumbering up Shooter's Hill, as he stood on his own particular perch behind the mail, beating his feet and keeping an eye and a hand on the arm chest before him, where a loaded blunderbuss lay at the top of six or eight loaded horse pistols deposited a substream of cutlass. The Dover mail was in its usual genial position that the guard suspected the passengers. The passengers suspected one another and the guard, and they all suspected everybody else and the coachman was sure of nothing but the horses, as to which cattle, he could have a clear conscience, have taken his oath on the two testaments that they were not fit for the journey. Whoa, ho,' said the coachman. "'So then, one more pull and you're at the top, and be damned you, for I've had trouble enough to get you to it.' "'Hala,' the guard replied. "'What o'clock do you make it, Joe?' Ten minutes good, past eleven. My blood ejaculated the vexed coachman, and not atop the shooters yet. Hiss. Yah, get on with you. The emphatic horse, cut short by the whip in a most decided negative, made a scramble for it, and the three other horses followed suit. Once more the Dover mail struggled on, with the jackboots of its passengers squashing along by its side. They had stopped when the coach stopped, and they kept close company with it. If any one of the three had the hardihood to propose to another to walk on a little ahead in the mist and the darkness, he would have put himself in a fair way of getting shot instantly as a highwayman. The last burst carried the mail to the summit of the hill. The horses stopped to breathe again. and The guard got down to the skid and the wheel for the descent and opened the coach door to let the passengers in. "'Tis, Joe,' cried the coachman in a warning voice. Looking down from his box, What do you say, Tom? They both listened. I say a horse at a canter coming up, Joe. I say a horse at a gallop, Tom, returned the guard, leaving his hold of the door and mounting nimbly into his place. Gentlemen, in the king's name, all of you. With this hurried adjuration, he cocked his blunderbuss and stood on the offensive. The passenger booked by this history was on the coach step, getting in. The two other passengers were close behind him and about to follow. He remained on the step, half in coach and half out of it. They remained in the road below him. They all looked from the coachman to the guard and from the guard to the coachman and listened. The coachman looked back and the guard looked back. Even the emphatic leader pricked up his ears and looked back, without contradicting. The stillness consequent, on the cessation of the rumbling and laboring of the coach, added to the stillness of the night, made it very quiet indeed. The panting of horses communicated a tremulous motion to the coach, as if it were in a state of agitation. The hearts and passengers beat loud enough, perhaps to be heard, but at any rate the quiet pause was audibly expressive of people out of breath, and holding the breath, and having the pulses quickened by expectation the sound of a horse at a gallop came fast and furiously up the hill so oh, the guard sang out, as loud as he could roar yo there stand i shall fire the pace was suddenly checked and with much splashing and floundering a man's voice called from the mist is that the dover mail never you mind what it is the guard retorted what are you is that the dover mail Why do you want to know? I want a passenger, if it is. What passenger? Mr. Jarvis Lorry. Our booked passenger showed in a moment that it was his name. The guard, the coachman, and the two other passengers eyed him distressfully. Keep where you are, the guard called to the voice in the mist. Because if I should make a mistake, it could never be set right in your lifetime. Gentleman of the name Lorry, answered straight. "'What is the matter?' asked the passenger. "'Then, with mildly quavering speech, "'Who wants me? Is it Jerry?' "'I don't like Jerry's voice. "'If it is Jerry,' growled the guard to himself. "'He's hoarser than suits me, is Jerry?' "'Yes, Mr. Lorry.' "'What is the matter?' "'A dispatch sent for you from over yonder, T. & Co.' "'I know this messenger guard,' said Mr. Lorry, "'getting down to the road.' "'assisted from behind more swiftly than politely "'by the other two passengers, "'who immediately scrambled into the coach, "'shut the door, and pulled up the window. "'He may come close. "'There's nothing wrong. "'I hope there ain't, "'but I ain't make no nation sure of that,' "'said the guard in gruff soliloquy. "'Hallow you.' "'Well, and hallow you,' said Jerry, "'more hoarsely than before. "'Come on at a foot pace. "'Do you mind me?' And if you've got holsters up to that saddle of yourn, don't let me see your hand go nigh for I'm a devil at a quick mistake, and when I make one, it takes the form of lead. So now let's look at you. The figures of a horse and a rider came slowly through the eddying mist to come to the side of the mail where the passengers stood. The rider stopped, and casting up his eyes at the guard, handed down the passenger a small folded paper The rider's horse was blown, and both the horse and the rider were covered with mud, from the hose to the horse to the hat of the man. Guard, said the passenger, in a tone of quiet business confidence. The watchful guard, with his right hand at the stock of his raised blunderbuss, his left at the barrel, and his eye on the horseman, answered curtly, Sir, there's nothing to apprehend. I belong to Tellson's bank. "'You must know Telson's bank in London. "'I'm going to Paris on business, a crown to drink. "'May I read this?' "'If so, be as your quick, sir.' "'He opened it in the light of the coach lamp at that side "'and read first to himself and then aloud. "'Wait at Dover for Mademoiselle. "'It's not long, you see, guard. "'Jerry, say that my answer was, recalled to life. "'Jerry started in his saddle.' "'That's a blazing strange answer, too,' said he at his horses. "'Take that message back, and they will know that I received this, as well as if I wrote. "'Make the best of your way. Good night.' "'With those words, the passenger opened the coach door and got in, "'not at all assisted by his fellow passengers, "'who had expeditiously secreted their washes and their purses and their boots.' with no more definite purpose than to escape the hazard originating any other kind of action. The coach lumbered on again, with with heavier wreaths of mist closing round as it began in the descent. The guard soon replaced his blunderbuss in the arm chest, and having looked at the rest of its contents, and having looked at the supplementary pistols that he wore in his belt, looked to a smaller chest beneath his seat, in which there were a few smith's tools, a couple of torches, and a tinderbox, for he was furnished with that completeness, that if the coach lamps had been blown and stormed out, which did occasionally happen, he had only to shut himself up inside, keep the flint and the steel sparks well off the straw, and get a light with tolerable safety and ease, if he were lucky, in five minutes. Tom, softly over the coach roof, Hello Joe, did you hear the message? I did Joe. What did you make of it, Tom? Nothing at all, Joe. That's a coincidence, too, the guard mused, for I've made the same of it myself. Jerry, left alone in the midst and the darkness, dismounted, meanwhile, not only to ease his spent horse, but to wipe the mud from his face and to shake the wet out of his hat brim, which might be capable of holding about half a gallon. After standing with the bridle over his heavily splashed arm, until the wheels of the mail were no longer within hearing, and the night was quite still again. He turned to walk down the hill. After that there gallop from the temple bar. Old lady, I won't trust your four legs till I get you on the level, said this horse messenger, glancing at his mare. We're called to life. That's a blazing strange message. Much of that wouldn't do for you, Jerry. I say, Jerry you'd be in a blazing bad way if her calling to life was to come into fashion, Jerry. The Night Shadows A wonderful fact to reflect upon, that every human creature is constituted to be the most profound secret and mystery to every other. A solemn consideration when I enter a great city by night, that every one of those darkly clustered houses encloses its own secret, that every room and every one of them encloses its own secret, that every beating heart, in the hundreds and thousands of breasts here, is in some of its imaginings a secret to the heart nearest to it. Something of the awfulness, even to death itself, is referable to this. No more can I turn the leaves of this dear book that I loved, and vainly hope in time to read it all. No more can I look into the depths of this unfathomable water, wherein, as momentary lights glanced into it, I have had glimpses of buried treasure, and other things submerged. It was appointed that the book should shut without a spring, forever and forever, when I had but read a page. It was appointed that the water should be locked in an eternal frost, when the light was playing on its surface, and I stood in ignorance on the shore. My friend is dead, my neighbor is dead, my love, the darling of my soul, is dead. It is the inexorable consolidation and perpetuation of the secret that is always in that individuality, in which I shall carry in mind to my life's end. In any of the burial places in this city, through which I pass, is there a sleeper more inscrutable than its busy inhabitants are, in their most innermost, in their innermost personality, to me, or than I to them? As to this, his natural and not to be alienated inheritance. The messenger on horseback had exactly the same possessions as the king, the first minister of state, or the richest merchant in London. So with the three passengers shut up in the narrow compass of the one lumbering old mail coach, they were mysteries to one another, as complete as if each had been their own coach and six, or his own coach and sixty, with the breath of a country between him and the next the messenger rode back at an easy trot, stopping pretty often at the alehouses by the way to drink, but evincing a tendency to keep his own counsel and to keep his hat cocked over his eyes. He had eyes that assorted very well with that decoration, being of a surface black, with no depth in the color of form, much too near together, as if they were afraid of being found out in something, singly, if they kept too far apart. They had a sinister expression, under an old cocked hat with a three-cornered spittoon, and over a great muffler for the chin and throat, which descended nearly to the wearer's knees. When he stopped for a drink, he moved his muffler with his left hand, only while he poured his liquor with his right. As soon as that was done, he muffled again. No, Jerry, no, said the messenger, harping on one theme as he rode. It wouldn't do for you, Jerry. Jerry, you honest tradesman. It wouldn't suit your line of business. Recalled. Bust me if I don't think you've been drinking. His message perplexed his mind to that degree in which he was fain several times to take off his hat and to scratch his head. Except in the crown, which was raggedly bald. He had stiff black hair, standing jaggedly all over it and growing downhill, almost to his broad, blunt nose. It was so like Smith's work, so much like the top of a strongly spiked wall, than a head of hair, that the best of players at the leapfrog might have declined him as the most dangerous man in the world to go over. While he trotted back with the message he was to deliver to the night watchman in his box at the door of Towson's Bank by a temple bar, who was to deliver to the greater authorities within the shadows of the night took shapes to him as it rose out of the message, and took much shapes as the mare arose out of her private topics of uneasiness. They seemed to be numerous, for she shied at every shadow on the road. What time the mail coach lumbered, jolted, rattled, and bumped on its tedious way, with its three fellow inscrutables inside, to whom, likewise, the shadow of the night revealed themselves, in the forms of their dozing eyes and wandering thoughts suggested. Towson's bank had a run upon it in the mail, as the bank passenger with an arm drawn through the leathern strap, which did what lay in it to keep him from pounding against the next passenger and driving him into his corner. Whenever the coach had a special jolt, Nodding in his place with half-shut eyes, the little coach windows and the coach lamp dimly gleaming through them and the bulky bundle of the opposite passenger became the bank, and did great stroke of business. The rattle of the harness was chink and money, and more drafts were honored in five minutes than even Tellson's, with all its foreign and home connection ever paid in thrice the time. Then the strong rooms underground, at Telson's, with such of their valuable stores and secrets as were known to the passenger, and it was not a little that he knew about them, opened before them. And he went in among them, with the great keys of the feebly burning candle, and found them safe and strong and sound and still, just as he had last seen them. But though the bank was almost always with him, and though the coach, in a confused way, like the presence of pain under an opiate, was always with him, There was always a current of impression that never ceased to run, all through the night. He was on his way to dig someone out of their own grave. Now, with such a multitude of faces that showed themselves before him, was the true face of the buried person. The shadows of the night did not indicate. But they were all faces of a man, of five and forty by years, and they differed principally in the passions they expressed and in the ghastliness of their worn and wasted state. Pride, contempt, defiance, stubbornness, submission, lamentation, succeeded one another. So did varieties of sunken cheek, cadaverous color, emaciated hands and figures. But the face was in the main one face, and every head was prematurely white. A hundred times the dozing passenger inquired of the specter. Buried how long? The answer was always the same. Almost eighteen years. You had abandoned all hope of being dug out. Long ago. You know how that you were crawled to life? They tell me so. I hope you care to live. I can't say. Shall I show her to you? Will you come and see her? The answers to this question were various and contradictory. Sometimes the broken reply was Wait. It would kill me if I saw her too soon. Sometimes it was given a tender rain of tears, and then it was, take me to her. Sometimes it was staring and bewildered, and then it was, I don't know her. I don't understand. After such imaginary discourse, the passenger, in his fancy, would dig, and dig, dig, now with a spade, now with a great key, now with his hands, to dig this wretched creature out. Got out at last, with earth hanging about his face and hair, he would suddenly fall away to dust. The passenger would then start to himself and lower the window to get the reality of mist and rain on his cheek. Yet even when his eyes were opened in the midst of the rain, on the moving patch of light from the lamps and the hedge at the roadside retreating by jerks, the night shadows outside the coach would fall into the train of the night shadows within. The real banking house by Temple Bar, the real business of the past day, the real strong rooms, the real express sent after him, the real message returned, would all be there. Out of the mist among them, the ghostly face would rise, and he would accost it again. Buried how long? Almost eighteen years. I hope he cared to live. I can't say. Dig, dig, dig until an impatient movement from one of the two passengers would admonish him to pull up the window, draw his arm securely through the leathern strap, and speculate upon the two slumbering forms, until his mind lost its hold of them, and they again slid into the bank and the grave. Buried how long? Almost eighteen years. You had abandoned all hope of being dug out? Long ago. The words were still in his hearing, has just spoken. Distinctly in his hearing as ever spoken words had been in his life when the weary passenger started to the consciousness of daylight and found that the shadows of the night were gone. He lowered the window and looked at the rising sun. There was a ridge of plowed land with a plow upon it where it had been left last night when the horses were unyoked, beyond a quiet coppice wood in which many leaves of burning red and gold and yellow still remained upon the trees. Though the earth was cold and wet, the sky was clear, and the sun rose bright, placid and beautiful. Eighteen years, said the passenger, looking at the sun, gracious creator of the day, to be buried alive for eighteen years. The Preparation When the mail got successfully to Dover in the course of the forenoon, the head drawer at the Royal George Hotel opened the coach door, as his custom was. He did it with some flourish of ceremony, for a mail journey from London in winter was an achievement to congratulate an adventurous traveler upon. By that time, there was only one adventurous traveler left to be congratulated, for the two others had been set down at their respective roadside destinations. The milled away inside the coach, with its damp and dirty straw, its disagreeable smell and the obscurity was rather like a larger sort of dog kennel. Mr. Lorry, the passenger, shaking himself out of it in chains of straw, a tangle of shaggy wrapper, flapping hat and muddy legs, was rather like a larger sort of dog. There will be a packet at Calais tomorrow. Drawer? Yes, sir, if the weather holds out and the wind sets tolerable fair. The tide will serve pretty nicely at about two in the afternoon, sir. Bed, sir? I shall not go to bed tonight, but I want a bedroom and a barber. And then breakfast, sir? Yes, sir. That way, sir, if you please. Show Concord. Gentleman's valise and hot water to Concord. Pull off gentleman's boots in Concord. You will find a fine sea coal fire, sir. Fetch barber to Concord. Stir about there now for Concord the conquered bedchamber being always assigned to a passenger by the mail, and passengers by the mail being always heavily wrapped up from head to foot. The room had the odd interest for the establishment of the royal George, that although but one kind of man was seen to go into it, all kinds and varieties of men came out of it. Consequently, another drawer, and two porters, and several maids, and the landlady, were all loitering by accident, at various points of the road between the Concord and the coffee room, when a gentleman of sixty, formerly dressed in a brown suit of clothes, pretty well worn, but very well kept, with large square cuffs and large flaps to the pockets, passed along on his way to breakfast. The coffee room had no other occupant. That forenoon, than the gentleman in brown, his breakfast table was drawn before the fire, and as he sat, with the lights shining on him, Waiting for the meal, he sat so still that he might have been sitting for his portrait. Very orderly and methodical, he looked, with a hand on each knee, and a loud watch-ticking, sonorous sermon under his flapped waistcoat, as though it pitted its gravity and longevity against the levity and evanescence of a brisk fire. He had a good leg, and was a little vain of it. for his brown stockings fitted sleek and close, and were of fine texture. His shoes and buckles, too, though plain, were trim. He wore an odd little, sleek, crisp flaxen wig, setting very close to his head. Which wig, it is to be presumed, was made of hair, but which looked far more as though it were spun from filaments of silk or glass. His linen, though not of a fineness in accordance with his stockings, was as white as the tops of the waves that broke upon the neighboring beach. "'or the specks of the sail that glinted in the sunlight far at sea. "'A face habitually suppressed and quieted "'was still lighted up under the quaint wig "'by a pair of moist, bright eyes "'that it must have cost their owner. "'In years gone by, some pains to drill "'still composed and reserved expression of Telson's bank. "'He had a healthy color in his cheeks, "'and his face, though lined, bore a few traces of anxiety.' but perhaps the confidential bachelor clerks in Tellson's Bank were principally occupied with the cares of other people, and perhaps second-hand cares, like second-hand clothes, come easily on and off. Completing his resemblance to the man who was sitting for his portrait, Mr. Lorry dropped off asleep. The arrival of his breakfast roused him, and he said to the drawer, as he moved his chair to it, I wish accommodation prepared for a young lady who may come here at any time today. She may ask for Mr. Jarvis Lorry, or she may only ask for a gentleman from Tellson's Bank. Please let me know. Yes, sir. Tellson's Bank in London, sir. Yes. Yes, sir. We have oftentimes the honor to entertain your gentlemen in their traveling backwards and forwards betwixt London and Paris, sir. A vast deal of traveling, sir in Telson and Company's house. Yes, we are a quite French house, as well as an English one. Yes, sir. Not much in the habit of such traveling yourself, I think, sir. Not of late years. It is fifteen years since we, since I, came last from France. Indeed, sir. That was before my time here, sir. Before our people's time here, sir. The George was in other hands at the time, sir. I believe so but I would hold a pretty large wager, sir, that a house like Telson and Company was flourishing, a matter of fifty, not to speak of fifteen years ago. You might treble that and say a hundred and fifty, yet not be far from the truth. Indeed, sir. Rounding his mouth in both his eyes, as he stepped backward from the table, the waiter shifted his napkin from his right arm to his left, dropped into a comfortable attitude, and stood surveying the guest while he ate and drank. As from an observatory or watchtower, according to the immemorial usage of waiters in all ages. When Mr. Lorry had finished his breakfast, he went out for a stroll on the beach. The little narrow, crooked down of Dover hid itself away on the beach and ran its head into the chalk cliffs like a marine ostrich. The beach was a desert of heaps of sea and stones tumbling wildly about, and the sea did what it liked, and what it liked. Was destruction. It thundered at the town and thundered at the cliffs and brought the coast down madly. The air among the houses was of so strong a piscatory flavor that one might have supposed sick fish went up and dipped in it as sick people went down to be dipped in the sea. A little fishing was done in the port and a quantity of strolling about by night and looking seaward, particularly at those times when the tide made and was near flood. Small tradesmen, who did no business whatsoever, sometimes unaccountably realized large fortunes, and it was remarkable that nobody in the neighborhood can endure a lamplighter. As the day declined into the afternoon, and the air, which had been at intervals clear enough to allow the French coast to be seen, became again charged with mist and vapor, Mr. Lorry's thoughts seemed to cloud too. When it was dark, and he sat before the coffee-room fire, awaiting his dinner as he had awaited his breakfast. His mind was busily digging, 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 in the live red coals. A bottle of good claret after dinner does a digger in red coals no harm, otherwise than has a tendency to throw him out of work. Mr. Lorry had been idle a long time, and had just poured out a last glass full of wine with as complete of an appearance of satisfaction as is ever to be found in an elderly gentleman of fresh complexion who has got to the end of the bottle, when a rattling of wheels came up the narrow street and rumbled into the inn-yard. He set down his glass and This is Mademoiselle, said he. In a very few minutes the waiter came in to announce that Miss Manette had arrived from London, and would be happy to see the gentleman from Tellson's. So soon, Miss Minette had taken some refreshment on the road, and required none then, and was extremely anxious to see the gentleman from Tellson's immediately, if it suited his pleasure and convenience. The gentleman from Tellson's had nothing left for him but to empty his glass with an air of stolid desperation, settle his odd little flaxen wig at the ears, and follow the waiter to Miss Minette's apartment. It was a large dark room, furnished in a funeral manner with black horsehair, and loaded with heavy dark tables. These had been oiled and oiled until the two tall candles on the table in the middle of the room were gloomily reflected on every leaf, as if they were buried in deep graves of black mahogany, and no light to speak of could be expected from them until they were dug out. The obscurity was so difficult to penetrate that Mr. Lorry, picking his way over the well-worn turkey carpet supposed Miss Manette to be, for a moment, in some adjacent room, until, having got past the two tall candles, he saw standing to receive him by the table, between them and the fire, a young lady, of not more than seventeen, in a riding cloak, and still holding her straw-traveling hat by its ribbon in her hand. As his eyes rested on a short, slight pretty figure, a quantity of golden hair, a pair of blue eyes that met his own with an inquiring look, and a forehead with a singular capacity remembering how young and smooth it was, of lifting and knitting itself into an expression that was not quite one of perplexity, or wonder, or alarm, or merely of a bright fixed attention, though it included all four expressions. As his eyes rested on these things, a sudden vivid likeness passed before him, and of a child whom he had held as of a child whom he had held in his arms on the passage across that very channel, one cold time when the hail drifted heavily and the sea ran high. The likeness passed away, say, like a breath along the surface of the gaunt pier glass behind her, in the frame of which a hospital procession of negro cupids Several headless and all cripples were offering black baskets of Dead Sea fruit to black divinities of the feminine gender, and he made his formal bow to Miss Minette. Pray take a seat, sir. In a very clear and pleasant young voice, a little foreign in its accent, but a very little indeed. I kiss your hand, miss, said Mrs. Lorry. I kiss your hand, miss, said Mr. Lorry, with the manners of an earlier date as he made his formal bow again and took his seat, I received a letter from the bank, sir, yesterday, informing me that some new intelligence or discovery, the word is not material, miss, either word will do. Respecting the small property of my poor father, whom I never saw, so long dead, Mr. Lorry moved in his chair and cast a troubled look towards this hospital procession of negro cupids as if they had any help for anybody in their absurd baskets. Rendered it necessary that I should go to Paris there and communicate with the gentleman of the bank, so good as to be dispatched from Paris for the purpose, myself, as I was prepared to hear, sir. She curtsied to him. Young ladies made curtsies in those days. With a pretty desire to convey to him that she felt how much older and wiser he was than she, he made her another bow, I replied to the bank, sir, that as it was considered necessary by those who know, and who are so kind to advise me, that I should go to France, and that as I am an orphan with no friend who could go with me, I should esteem it highly, and I might be permitted to place myself during the journey under that worthy gentleman's protection. The gentleman had left London, but I think a messenger was sent after him to beg the favor of his waiting for me here. I was happy, said Mr. Lorry, to be entrusted with the charge. I shall be more happy to execute it. Sir, I thank you indeed. I thank you very gratefully. It was told to me by the bank that the gentleman would explain to me the details of the business, and that I must prepare myself to find them of a surprising nature. I have done my best to prepare myself, and I naturally have a strong and eager interest to know what they are. Naturally, said Mr. Lorry. Yes, I. After a pause, he added, again settling the crisp flaxen wig at the ears. It was very difficult to begin. He did not begin, but in his indecision met her glance. The young forehead lifted itself into that singular expression, but it was pretty and characteristic, besides being singular, and she raised her hand, as if with an involuntary action she caught at or stayed some passing shadow. Are you quite a stranger to me, sir? Am I not? Mr. Lorry opened his hands and extended them outward with an argumentative smile. Between the eyebrows and just over the little feminine nose, the line of which was as delicate and fine as it was possible to be, the expression deepened itself as she took her seat thoughtfully in the chair by which he had hitherto remained standing. He watched her as she mused, and the moment she raised her eyes again went on. In your adopted country, I presume, I cannot do better than address you as a young English lady, Miss Minette, if you please, sir. Miss Minette, I am a man of business. I have a business charge to acquit myself of. In your reception of it, don't heed me any more than if I was a speaking machine. Truly, I am not much else. I will, with your leave, relate to you, Miss, the story of one of your customers. Story. He seemed witfully to mistake the words she had repeated when he added in a hurry, yes, customers. In the banking business, we usually call our connection to our customers. In the banking business, we usually call our connection our customers. He was a French gentleman, a scientific gentleman, a man of great acquirements, a doctor. Not a bouvet. Why, yes, a bouvet. Like Monsieur Manette, your father... The gentleman was of Bouvet. Like Monsieur Mina, your father, the gentleman was of repute in Paris. I had the honor of knowing him there. Our relations were business relations, but confidential. I was at the time in our French house, and had been, oh, twenty years. At that time, I may ask, at what time, sir? I speak, miss, of twenty years ago. He married, an old English lady, and I was one of the trustees. His affairs, like the affairs of many other French gentlemen and French families, were entirely in Telson's hands. In a similar way, I am, or I have been, trustee of one kind or another for scores of our customers. These are mere business relations, miss. There is no friendship in them, no particular interest, nothing like sentiment. I pass from one or to another in the course of my business life just as I pass from one of our customers to another in the course of my business day. In short, I have no feelings. I'm a mere machine to go on. But this is my father's story, sir. And I begin to think. The curiously roughened forehead was very intent upon him. That when I was left as an orphan, that my mother surviving my father was only two years. It was you who brought me to England. I'm almost sure it was you. Mr. Lorry took the hesitating little hand that confidently advanced to his and he put it with some ceremony to his lips. Then he conducted the young lady straight away in her chair again and holding the chair back with his left hand and using his right by turns to rub his chin, pull his wig at his ears or point what he said, stood looking down into her face while she sat looking up into his. Miss Manette, it was I and you'll see how truly I spoke of myself now in saying I had no feelings and that all relations I hold with my fellow creatures are mere business relations. When you reflect that I have never seen you since. No, you have been the ward of the Tellson's house since, and I have been busy with other business of Tellson's house since. Feelings, I have no time for them, no chance of them. I pass my whole life, miss, in turning an immense pecuniary mangle after this odd description of his daily routine of employment, Mr. Lorry flattened his flaxen wig upon his head with both hands, as much necessary for nothing could be flatter than its shining surface was before, and resumed his former attitude. So far, miss, as you have remarked, this is the story of your regretted father. Now comes the difference. If your father had not died when he did, don't be frightened how you start. She did indeed start and she cut his wrist with both her hands. Pray, said Mr. Lorry, in a soothing tone, bringing his left hand from the back of the chair to lay it on the supplicatory fingers that clasped him in so violent a tremble. Pray control your agitation, a matter of business, as I was saying. Her look so discomposed him that he stopped, wondered, and began anew. As I was saying, if Monsieur Manette had not died, if he had suddenly and silently disappeared, if he had been spirited away, if it had not been difficult to guess to what dreadful place, though no art could trace him, and if he had an enemy and some compatriot, who could exercise a privilege that I in my own time have known the boldest people, afraid to speak in a whisper, across the water there, for instance the privilege of filling up bank forms and consignment of any one to the oblivion of a prison, for any length of time if his wife had implored the king the queen the court the clergy for any tidings of him and all quite in vain then the history of your father would have been the history of this unfortunate gentleman the doctor of bouvet i entreat you will tell me more sir i will i'm going to you can bear it i can bear anything but the uncertainty you leave me in in this moment you speak collectively and you are collected. That's good. Though his manner was less satisfied than his words. A matter of business. Regard it as a matter of business. Business that must be done. Now, if this doctor's wife, though a lady of great courage and spirit, had suffered so intensely from this cause before her little child was born, the little child was a daughter, sir. A daughter. Uh, a matter of business. Don't be distressed. Miss, if the poor lady had suffered so intensely before her little child was born that she came to the determination of sparing the poor child the inheritance of any part of agony she had known the pains of by rearing her in the belief that her father was dead, no, don't kneel. In the heaven's name, why should you kneel to me? For the truth. Oh, dear, good, compassionate sir, for the truth. Uh, A matter of business. You confuse me, and how can I transact business if I am confused? Let us be clear-headed. If you could kindly mention now, for instance, what nine times ninepence are, or how many shillings and twenty guineas, it would be so encouraging. I should be so much more at ease about your state of mind. Without directly answering to this appeal, she sat so still that when he had gently raised her and the hands that had not ceased to clasp her wrists were so much more steady than they have been, that she communicated some reassurance to mister Jarvis Lorry. That's right, that's right. Courage, business. You have business before you, useful business. Miss Minette, your mother took this course with you, and when she lived, I believe broken hearted, having never slackened her unveiling search for your father. She left you, at two years old, to grow to be blooming, beautiful and happy, without the dark cloud upon you of living in uncertainty, whether your father soon wore his heart out in prison or wasted there though many lingering years. As he said the words, he looked down with an admiring pity on the flowing of golden hair, as if he pictured to himself that I might have already been tinged with gray. You know that your parents had no gray possession and that what they had was secured to your mother and to you. There has been no discovery of money, or any other property, but he felt his wrist held closer, and he stopped. The expression in his forehead, which he had so particularly attracted his notice, and which was now immovable, had deepened into one of pain and horror, but he has been, and found. He is alive, greatly changed, it is too probable, almost a wreck, it is possible, though we will hope for the best. "'still alive. "'Your father has been taken to the house of an old servant in Paris, "'and we are going there. "'I, to identify him, if I can, "'you to restore him to life. "'Love, duty, rest, comfort.' "'A shiver ran through her frame, "'and from it through his. "'She said in a low, distinct, awe-stricken voice, "'as if she were saying it in a dream, "'I'm going to see his ghost. "'It will be his ghost, not him.' Mr. Lorry quietly chafed the hands that held his arms. There, there, there. See now, see now. The best and the worst are known to you now. You are well on your way to the poor wrong gentleman. With a fair sea voyage and a fair land journey, you will soon be at his dear side. She repeated in the same tone, sunk to a whisper. I have been free. I have been happy. Yet his ghost has never haunted me. "'Only one thing more,' said Mr. Lorry, laying stress upon it as a wholesome means of enforcing her attention. He has been found under another name, his own, long-forgotten or long-concealed. It would be worse than useless now to inquire which, worse than useless to seek to know whether he has been four years overlooked or always designedly held prisoner. It would be worse than useless now to make any inquiries because it would be very dangerous.' Better not to mention the subject anywhere or in any way to remove him, and while, at all events, out of France. Even I, safe as an Englishman, and even Telsons, important as they are to French credit, avoid all naming of the matter. I carry about me not a scrap of writing openly referring to it. This is a secret service altogether. My credentials, entries, and memoranda are all comprehended in the one line recalled to life which may mean anything but what is the matter she doesn't notice a word miss manette perfectly still and silent and not even falling back into her chair she sat under his hand utterly insensible with her eyes open and fixed upon him and with that last expression looking as if it were carved or branded into her forehead so close was her hold upon his arm that he feared to detach himself lest he should hurt her Therefore, he called out loudly for assistance without moving. A wild looking woman, whom, even in his agitation, Mr. Lorry observed to be all of red color, and to have red hair, and to be dressed in some extraordinary tight fitting fashion, and to have on her head a most wonderful bonnet, like a grenadier wooden measure, and good measure too, or a great Stilton cheese, came running into the room in advance of the inn servants and soon resettled the question of his detachment from the poor young lady by laying a brawny hand upon his chest and sending him flying back against the nearest wall. I really think this must be a man, was Mr. Lorry's breathless reflection, simultaneously with this coming against the wall. Why, look at you all, bald as figure, addressing the in-servants. Why don't you go and fetch things instead of standing there staring at me? I'm not so much to look at, am I? Why don't you go and fetch things? I'll let you know. If you don't bring the smelling salts, cold water, and vinegar, quick, I will. There was an immediate dispersal for these restoratives, and she softly laid the patient on the sofa and tended to her with great skill and gentleness, calling her my precious and my bird and spreading her golden hair aside over her shoulders with great pride and care. And you and Brown, she said, "'indignantly turning on Mr. Lorry. "'Couldn't you tell her what you had to tell her "'without frightening her to death? "'Look at her, with her pretty pale face and her cold hands. "'Do you call that being a banker?' "'Mr. Lorry was so exceedingly disconcerted "'by a question so hard to answer "'that he could only look on at a distance "'with much feebler sympathy and humility "'while the strong man, having banished the servants "'under the mysterious penalty,' of letting them know. Something not mentioned. if they stayed there, staring, recovered her charge by a regular series of graduations, and coaxed her to lay her drooping head upon her shoulder. I hope she will do well now, said Mr. Lorry, no thanks to you and Brown, if she does, my darling pretty. I hope, said Mr. Lorry, for another pause of feeble sympathy and humility that you accompany Miss Manette to France. A likely thing, too, replied the strong woman. If it was ever intended that I should go across salt water, do you suppose Providence would have cast my law in an island? This being another question hard to answer, Mr. Jarvis Lorry withdrew to consider it. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.